0: Good morning, everybody. All right, so today we are starting a new uh, book of the Bible, and we're going to be going through 1 Peter. Uh, we'll go through 1 Peter, which I think is five chapters, and, I, and then we'll go through 2 Peter as well, uh, which is eight, uh, three chapters, so a total of eight chapters in First and Second Peter. And uh, from past experience, this will probably take us seven to nine months, something like that, to, uh, to, to go through here. Uh, so to, the title of our lesson today is Exiles. Exiles, and we're just going to get through one verse. Uh, we'll get to verse 2 next week, and then we'll be in verse 2 the week after, so we're not going to get very far pretty quickly, but, uh, but then we'll get moving along. Uh, let's read verse 1, 1 Peter 1, one. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, I want to start out this morning and give you a little background uh, of this uh, book. Uh, on July 19th of 64 AD, and you can go Google this and, and read about it on the internet if you want to, a fire uh, broke out in, in Rome, and uh, historians tell us that it began uh, in the uh, merchant shops surrounding the chariot stadium which stadium which is known as as Circus Maximus and it burned for about six days and they finally brought it under control and they thought they had it put out and then it reignited, broke out again, and it burned for another uh, three days now when when you and I think about Rome back then, we think of the pictures we see on TV, we watch Ben-Hur, places like that, right? So we think of the Colosseum, we think about the temples, we think about, we think concrete, everything's concrete. But much of Rome, uh, the, were the, the tenements, they had these tenements, these little apartments that were three and four stories, and they were all built out of wood, and they lined these very narrow streets. And so it was very easy for the fire just to jump from street to street to street, and that's why they had such a hard time... Uh, containing it, and by the time it was over, uh, after those nine days, two thirds of the city had been burnt. Now, of course, the people are are devastated. Over ninety percent of the homes in in in, uh, in Rome were just completely destroyed. Uh, so, ninety percent of the people are are homeless. So, you can imagine the type of economic and social and cultural loss it was. And, and on top of that, it brought religious chaos. They had all these shrines to their gods, things like uh, the Temple of Luna, the Era Maxima, the Great Altar, the Temple of Jupiter, the Shrine of Vesta, all these really you know, super nice uh, 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 temples and shrines that they had built up to worship their numerous gods, and they were all uh, completely destroyed. So you can uh, imagine the people are are just devastated. Now... They thought, you know, anytime there's a, a tragedy, we always got to blame somebody, right? I mean, we see it all the time. You got to find blame. Well, the people immediately blamed Nero, their, their emperor. Now, you, you can go read about Nero. He was some kind of freak, maniac, crazy kind of guy. And they just assumed he did it because he had this lust for building. He was always wanting to build new things and put his name on it. And uh, so they just decided you know he must have burnt down the whole city just so he could he could rebuild it and and do what he wanted uh, to do so they 're very angry they 're very bitter, and he 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 's hearing the rumors that <clears throat> they 're turning against him now, whether he actually did it or not we don 't know for sure there 's disagreement there 's no definitive proof that he actually burned the city. but the fact was whether he did it or not, they thought he did, <clears throat> so he had to find. a a scapegoat, and so his scapegoat were the Christians. He began to spread rumors himself and through his people that the Christians were to blame. Now, why would he choose them? And it was a very smart move on on his part. In fact, it was ingenious because, first of all, the Christians were already disliked, and in some cases, they were outright hated. Now, you may ask, well, why would people hate Christians? Well, there were several reasons. Number one uh, the Romans associated with them, them with Jews, right? Jesus was a Jew. The disciples were, were uh, Jews. It came out of Jerusalem. And, and the Romans were notorious anti-Semites. They, they did not like Jews. So right off the bat, this was a, quote, Jewish religion to them, and they didn't like it. Uh, Christians would not worship the emperor. Uh, they would not worship the Roman gods. They, they, in, in the minds of the Romans, they would only worship this new god, so they didn't like them because of that. Uh, they had this thing, the, the Christians had this thing called the Lord's Supper, and they would do it, they, they wouldn't let pagans in. Nobody could just come in and, to the Lord's Supper. You had to be a believer. You had to be a member of the body of Christ. And so the Romans would hear these rumors that they're eating the flesh of, 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 of Christ. And so they just assumed, well, they must be practicing some kind of cannibalism or something. They didn't understand. So the rumor was rife throughout the, the city that Christians were, uh, were cannibals. Christians were also unpopular because many prominent Roman wives of, uh, of like Roman senators and stuff were actually leaving the religion of the, of the Romans and moving over and worshiping Christ. And that just wasn't done. And so Christianity became became known as this religion that split families, which by the way is is true. Right? That's that's what Jesus said. Don't think I've come to, to bring peace. I've come to bring a sword. I'll split mothers and fathers because you'll have to make a choice. So that was that was true, and and, and they believed that. Finally, you gotta think Christians were always talking about the day is gonna come where the whole world's gonna burn up, right? And so who that you know, well, they always talking about it. They must have made it happen, right? So So Nero picked the right group, as you can see. In fact, it was a really ingenious move uh, for him to to do that. So as a result of this, an intense persecution um, began to kind of flare up, not only in the city of Rome, but throughout the Roman Empire. It always had kind of just been there just under the surface, but now it just broke out into outright persecution. Um, If you ever want to read this, you can go back... And Google a guy by the name of Tacitus, who was a Roman historian, and he wrote about this time. And He wrote about some of the things they did. Uh, you've heard probably one thing you've, you've heard about over the years is they literally would roll them in tar, tie them to a pole, and set them on fire, uh, Christians, to light their, their garden parties. That, that literally physically happened. That wasn't just a rumor. They would sew them into the skins of wild animals and then throw them out into a pen and let wild dogs attack them. And and eat them. they were nailed to crosses. They were they were bulled. They were burned. They were stabbed. They were they were you name it, it was done. They they came up with new ways and and, and especially cruel ways to kill uh, Christians. So Christians, of course, at this time, they've got to run. They're forced to flee Rome. And and as they flee, they flee out into these other cities and these other provinces. And the persecution just follows them, you know. Again, as as people leave, it, it, they go to these new cities, and here's these Christians, and they burn Rome. Let's let's kill them, right? So, as it spread, it touched these provinces, and these are these are the provinces that Peter mentions in his letter: Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, which are all, by the way, in in modern day uh, Turkey. Now. This persecution lasted about five years, from 64 to 68 AD. Sometime in that five years, the persecution caught up with Peter. He would, he would be martyred sometime in that period. So this persecution that arose out of the fire of Rome eventually would kill uh, Peter. But sometime in that five years, he wrote these two letters. Okay? So sometime in that period, we don't know exactly when, we don't know exactly the date he was killed, but sometime in that persecution he was killed, but before he did, he wrote First and Second Peter. He's writing to believers who are aliens, who are foreigners, who are strangers in a foreign and a hostile culture. He's writing to Christians who are suffering. Now there's no doubt what the purpose of this letter is. I'm going to read you, I'm going to pick a, I picked a verse from each chapter of 1 Peter, and you tell me what the subject is. First 1 Peter 1, 1.6, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. First Peter 2.21, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. 1 Peter chapter 3, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. 1 Peter four twelve. beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. And then in chapter 5, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So it's obvious if you look at it from a a 10,000-foot view, this is about suffering. He's writing to people who are going through a great time of difficulty, a great time of hostility, a great time uh, of trouble. So the emphasis of this letter is to teach believers how to live victoriously in the midst of a hostile culture. When people around you don't like you, even to the point of possibly killing you. That's what this letter is, is all about. But we'll see as we move through the letter. It, he, it, it's not about just how to make it right? He wants to teach us how to live victoriously, how to, how to live without losing heart, without uh, keeping in mind who we are, without becoming bitter and, and, uh, and losing hope and losing our faith, but always remembering who our Savior is, always remembering what our destiny is, always remembering that He's coming back and He's going to put an end to all the, all the suffering. That's what this letter is about. Now, I want to talk a little bit this morning about who wrote the letter, because when you read this letter, it is an amazing, uh, letter. First Peter 1-1, it tells us who wrote it. It says Peter. So he identifies himself in the very first verse who is writing this, this letter. Now, we all know Peter. Peter was, of course, one of the Twelve disciples chosen by Jesus. We know a lot about him. We know he had a brother named Andrew. We know that they uh, were born and raised in a, in a city called Bethsaida. Uh, later on in their life, they moved to a, a city called Capernaum. We know he was married. We know the gospel tells us that Jesus healed his mother-in-law. So we know that he had a, he had a wife and a, and a family. Uh, we know that his given name was Simon. That's what his mom and dad uh, named him when he was born. But Jesus changed his name, uh, John 1.41. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which is the Aramaic version of Peter, or which means Peter in Greek. So sometimes you'll hear him called Cephas if they're writing in Aramaic. Sometimes you'll see him called Peter if they're writing in in Greek. Now, in the Bible, there are four lists of all the disciples. If you want to go look these up later, you'll find them in Matthew 10, Mark 3, Luke 6, and Acts 1. So it's four times in the Bible where it lists all the disciples, okay? At the the top or the head of every single list is always who? Peter. In fact, if you go read the list, after you get past the first name, there is no real order. The order will kind of get jumbled up, but every single list always puts Peter at the very top. And there's... There's a reason for that because he is the leader of the twelve disciples. Now, if you go read the Gospels, it, they're full of things about Peter. In fact, the only other person in the, that's mentioned in the Gospels more than Peter is Jesus himself. If you, if, you, if, you, if you just went and started naming and putting in a list how many times Jesus is mentioned, how many times Peter, James, John, Peter always comes second. There's more about him than any other person with the exception of of Jesus. And and it really is some amazing things. Jesus spoke words to him that he didn't speak to anybody else. Words of approval, words of praise. At the same time, he rebuked Peter and and spoke harsh words to him like he didn't speak to any of the other disciples, with the exception maybe of of Judas. He was the only disciple that literally had the gall. (laughs) to rebuke Jesus himself. But he's also the same disciple nobody else spoke as boldly as he did, who affirmed Jesus, who encouraged Jesus more than, than, than Peter himself. Now, we all love Peter, don't we? If you just picked one person out of the Bible who you identify with, we'd pick Peter because he is so human, right? We, we see how human he is. He could be so good, and the next day he could be so bad. He could succeed in these incredible ways and then turn around and he would fail, just like us. He's exactly like us. That's why we love him, because he's, he's human. Now, now, don't keep in mind, all the other disciples are exactly the same. They're all human too, but the Bible doesn't tell us as much about them as it does about Peter. That's why, Peter, we know so much. When you just think about it, what do you know about James? Anybody? Not a lot, do you? What, what do you know about Andrew? Not a lot. But boy, you know a lot about Peter because the gospel tells us all of this stuff. So his humanness, his frailty comes through to us more than any other uh, disciples. Now, I actually thought about taking three or four lessons and just dealing with, with Peter. And I decided not to do that because that's really not what this study is about. But that, if, I just, if I just went to every, everything that happened to him, every place he was mentioned, we literally could take a month of Sundays, just going through uh, the Peter. So what I decided to do was something a little bit different. There are th- roughly 35 years between uh, when Jesus dies and when Peter writes this letter, 30-something years. And, and the Peter you see in the Gospels and the Peter that you see in this letter are completely different. It's, you're like, how did that guy <laughs> write this letter? I'm telling you, in the first two verses, there is theology that is out of this world. Just just in two verses, there are just theologies that's just, wow. In fact, it's so deep that most of the time we'll read the two verses and just move on. We won't even stop and think about it. But it is so deep. And when I got to first two, I'm like, how did that guy write this? How did you go from a fisherman to that? So what I decided to do this morning was give you an idea of how Jesus shaped Peter into being The man that he would, was, that the man that would write this letter some 30 years later. Now, we gotta understand, Peter is born with raw material. We're all born with raw material. By the way, the raw material that you're born with is still a gift from God, is it not? What do you have that, that he didn't give you? Nothing. If you're born with the ability to sing, that's a gift from God. If you're born with the ability to speak, that's a gift from God. If you're born with with no fear of crowds, that's a gift from God. If you're born with leadership, that's a gift from God. So he is born with these raw gifts. And you see it all through the Gospels. He's a verbalizer. He runs his mouth. He is not afraid to just step out and say things the way they are. He's a questioner. He's always asking questions. When the other people, they got the same questions, but they won't say it. They're afraid to open their mouth. He's not. And he's an initiator. He's always initiating. Listen, if you went out with Peter, I don't. it might be good, it might be bad, but it wouldn't be boring. Okay? He's going to make some mistakes, he's going to do some good things, but it's never going to be boring. And you see this just all throughout the Gospels. I'm just going to give you a few. Matthew 15, 15, Peter said to him, Explain the parable to us, right? Now, Jesus has just spoke. I mean, how many of us will just say, yeah, yeah, I get it. Right, we don't know what he's talking about, but we're shaking our head. Yeah, that's good. Peter's like, "Hey, I don't know what you're talking about. Explain it to me." Right? He just—that's just who he was. Matthew eighteen twenty one. Peter came up and said, "Lord, how often should I forgive my brother? Seventy, you know, uh, seven times. You know, that's just Peter, man. He's just, you know, I mean, he's—he's he's going to be that guy." Matthew nineteen twenty seven. Peter said in reply, "Hey, we left everything and followed you. What do we get?" Right? I mean, that's Peter. Mark eleven twenty one. 21, Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has, has withered. Luke 8, 45, Jesus said, Who touched me when all denied it? No, I didn't do it, I didn't do it. Peter said, look, there's a crowd pressing around you. How, how are we supposed to know that, right? I mean, he's always this guy. John 21, 21, when Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Matthew 14, 27 to 29, Jesus immediately said to them, "Take." this is when he walks out on the water. He said immediately, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Peter, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said, and Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water. I mean, this guy is, is literally incredible. He just has no fear. He's a He is a natural, raw leader. He's always verbalizing, he's always questioning, he's always initiating. He makes things happen. Like I said, sometimes it's going to be good, sometimes it's going to be bad, but it's never going to be boring. And by the way, that's not unusual for a leader. When you find somebody that's born with these these kind of talents, these kind of just raw things, they're going to just naturally lead. They're going to naturally be out front. And a lot of times, by the way, they're going to make mistakes because they're not mature. They're not complete, right? So especially young people like that that try to be leaders they're going to make mistakes because they just haven't become the person they're going to become. Now, Peter makes a lot of them, right? He's always putting his foot in his mouth. He's always speaking, but that's just part of who he is. So how does that man go from being that type of person to the person 30 years later who will write some of the greatest theology that's ever been put down on paper? How does he go from that... Well, the Lord takes him through a series of life experiences. He uses life to shape him into the man that he wants him to be. So I want to give you five things that the Lord did for him. Now remember, God's Jesus is only with him for three years, basically three short years. And in those three years, he has to turn him in from this person with all this raw ability into a different type of person. So he takes him through these experiences that are meant to conform him and shape him. And like I said, I'm just going to give you a short list. The first thing he does is he chooses him. He chooses him. And we'll see next week that that, that's where it all starts. You have to be chosen. Mark 1, 16 through 18. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen... And Jesus said, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and they followed him. So they have been chosen by the Son of God. They have been chosen by the Christ, the Messiah. Follow me and they do. The next thing that he has given is he has given great revelation. John 6, verses 66 to 69. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. And Jesus said to the twelve, Are you going to leave me as well? And Simon Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Matthew chapter 16 says this, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they said, Some say you're John the Baptist, some say you're Elijah, Others say you're Jeremiah. Others say you're one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And here he is again. Simon Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon, son of John, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. He has given great revelation, and he gets it from the Father himself. He has promised, and not only has He chosen, He's given great revelation, and He has promised a great reward. Matthew 16 through 18. And I tell you, Jesus said, You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. By the way, that came true. Jesus on the day, uh, uh, Peter on the day of Pentecost walked outside and brought salvation to the Jews. A few months later, he goes to Samaria, who are half-breeds. They're half-Jewish and half-Gentiles. And he preaches in Samaria, and he brings the gospel to them. And of course, Cornelius sends to his house in Acts chapter 10, and he comes and preaches, and the Gentiles are saved. So who is the man that brings the gospel to the Jews, the, the Samaritans, and the Gentiles? It's Peter. He built his church on top of Peter. He did exactly what he said he would do. Now, at this point, he's got to have a big head, doesn't he? You've been called... You've been given revelation, right? You've been promised, I'm going to build my church on you, man. And all of a sudden, I mean, his head's got to be like, look at me. And of course, there's two more things Jesus brings into his life. The first one is great rebuke. Matthew 16, 21 to 23. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside... And began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And he turned and he said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, for you are a hindrance to me. You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of a man. That is the strongest rebuke that Jesus ever gave to anyone that believed in him. Get behind me, Satan. Can you imagine? <laughs> you, you got all this going on, and he said he calls you Satan. He says, You're a hindrance to me. You're not helping me. You're hurting me. I mean, that is the greatest rebuke he ever gave. That kind of probably brought him down four or five notches, don't you think? Um, so again, he humbles him. He's given great revelation. He's promised that he's going to be uh, used to build the church, and then Jesus just pulls the rug right out from, from under him. And of course, the other thing he had come into his life was great failure. Matthew 26, 33 to 35, Peter answered him, "'Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away.'" And Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, Peter, this very night before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. And Peter said, even if I have to die, I will never do that. And all the disciples said the, the same. Later on in Matthew 26, Peter's sitting outside in the courtyard. This is after Jesus had been arrested and a servant girl came up to him and said, you were with Jesus the Galilean, but he denied it and said, I don't know what you mean. He went to the entrance, another girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I swear, I do not know the man. And after a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, certainly you are one of them, for your speech or your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself, and he said, to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed, And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. You know who the most disappointed person is at that point? It's not the bystanders. It's not even Jesus. Jesus already knew what he was going to do. It's him. Isn't that the worst? When you fail like that and deep down inside. Every time I, I wept bitterly, I know exactly how he felt. When you fail, when you swore you would never do that again, and then you do it. And then what's in... I mean, that just is a... You feel like nothing. And that's really... uh, He was... By the way, do you remember Jesus said, Peter, Satan has asked to what? Sift you like wheat. He's asked to sift you like wheat. And I gave him permission. that That was allowed. That was planned. That was ordained. Why? Because he was using it to shape him into the man that he would become some years later. Now... A calling, revelation, reward. Now he's, he's at the bottom, isn't he? I mean, all of this, now I'm down here. I'm, what am I? I'm nothing, right? And he gets the final thing, which is a calling. John 21, 15 to 17. This is after the resurrection. They're out fishing. They see Jesus uh, they, up on the... He's cooking some breakfast, and he said this. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said, Feed my sheep. And he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. And he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. See, that was the calling. Jesus was fixing to leave. He said, feed my sheep. A couple of final thoughts on Peter. It's interesting that in the Gospels when you read, sometimes he's called Simon, which was his old name. Sometimes he's called Simon Peter, which is a combo of the old and the new. And sometimes he's called Peter. By the way, I love that because that's exactly us, isn't we? Sometimes I'm the old Derek. Sometimes I'm the new Derek. And most of the time I'm just a combination of the old and the new and struggle. Are you with me? See, that's kind of fit with his life and it fits with our life. But I'll tell you this, 30 years later, he sits down to write this letter. He's not Simon anymore. He's not Simon. He's not Simon Peter. There is no doubt in his mind who he is. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, that word apostle comes from the Greek word to be sent out. Okay, it is a, It's a messenger or a spokesman who is speaking with the authority of somebody else on behalf of another. He is, he's writing this letter as a messenger of Jesus Christ. He's speaking with the authority of Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying. I'm an apostle, I'm a messenger of Jesus Christ. He is saying to us in this letter exactly what Jesus would say if he was standing there. Now let me tell you something. We're, we're, we're going through a series on visitations. And, and let me tell you, don't ever forget. Please don't ever forget this. Every time you pick this up, he's visiting you. Every time you read this word, these are the words of Jesus himself speaking to you. When you recall scriptures in your mind, he's speaking to you. He should speak to you hundreds of times a day, if not thousands of times a day through this word. And that's what Peter's saying. I'm just telling you what Jesus has given me the authority to, to say to you. Now, who is he writing to? He says this, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect, and we're going to deal with that word next, next week. We'll leave that one alone today. We'll come back next week and, and have the whole lesson on that word pretty much. Who are elect exiles of the dispersion. So the exiles of the dispersion, and that's what we want to focus on for the last few minutes. There tends to be a lot of disagreement about who he's writing to. Um, some say it applies only to Jews, that he's writing to Jewish Christians. Others say that he's writing to both Jew and Gentile Christians. And the, the, the word for exiles, which is Greek, peripodemus, it, it really has no association with a group. That word is just exactly what we think it means. Exiles, strangers, pilgrims, aliens, sojourners, foreigners. It's, it's someone who is a temporary resident. Okay? If you're a, temp- you're a temporary resident in a certain place, this is not your home that you are an exile. That's what he's calling them. However, many, believe, uh, many commentators believe that he's referring to Jewish exiles because he uses the word dispersion, which is the Greek diaspora. Now, that is a uniquely Jewish term. Um, in John chapter 7, the, it, this is used. For example, Jesus said, I'm going to be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to come, go into him who sent me you will seek me and you will not find me and where I am you cannot come. And the Jews said to one another, where is he going to go that we can't find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion? Well, what are they talking about? Dispersion refers to the dispersal of Jews outside the land of Israel. Okay, They're they're considered to be exiles from their homeland. Now this all started in 586 BC when uh, the Babylon came and overcame Judah, and they basically shipped all the people out back to Babylon as slaves. They, they uh, deported them, okay? So but they left very few Jews, and so that was called the dispersion. They were dispersed out into the Babylonian kingdom. Now, some 70 years later, Cyrus the Great uh, conquers Babylon, and he, he gives... Um, Ezra and a couple others' permission to go back and rebuild the wall and, and the people could go back home if they wanted to. But a lot of the Jews had grown up in Babylon. They were born in Babylon and they didn't know anything about Israel and they didn't want to go back. So they just decided, we're going we're gonna to stay out here. For example, 500 years later, by the time you get to the first century B.C., Alexandria, Egypt is 40% Jewish. Forty percent Jewish. By the two hundred years later, by the first century AD, an estimated five million Jews live outside of, of Israel, and four fifths of them within the Roman Empire. So dispersed Jews ever since, now think about that, ever since the Babylonian captivity, ever since then, dispersed Jews have always outnumbered the Jews that live in Israel. Even today, there are about fourteen million Jews in the world, only four million of them live in the nation of Israel. So some commentators, like John Calvin, believe when he uses the word dispersion, he's writing to Jews, exiles of the dispersion, okay? And so that well, he's got to be writing to Jews. So is that true? Is he only writing to Jewish Christians? Well, I don't think so, and many commentators don't think so. I, use, I think he's using the term as a metaphor. He's borrowing the term based on the experience of the the Jews. In fact, he frames this letter in the metaphor in 1st Peter chapter 5, the last chapter, he'll say this, she who is at Babylon. Now by the way, by this time there is no Babylon. Babylon's long gone. So what's he referring to? Well, that's a code name for Rome. He's referring she who is at Rome. That's they, they called Rome Babylon back back then. So why do we think this is a a metaphor? Because there are things in the letter that just don't seem to refer to Jews. For example, 1st Peter 4, he said this, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Now here he's just using the Gentiles as unbelievers. He's not referring to them as a race or anything like that. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. Now here's the thing. Jews didn't do any of that stuff. You couldn't even find, you couldn't find a Jew who was involved in orgies and drinking parties. So why would anybody be surprised when they didn't participate? He's writing to people who used to engage in those activities, and now they're surprised. Well, why won't you do that anymore? So it seems he's talking to past Gentiles here. To be honest with you, to me it's a minor point, right? Whether he's writing to Jewish Christians or Gentile Christians, he's still writing to people who are living in the midst of a hostile and difficult culture. He's writing to people like the writer of Hebrews when he talks about people being strangers and exiles on the earth, desiring a better country that is a heavenly one. So he's just writing to people who, this world is not our home. You see, why did I pick First Peter? That's what Kathy was asking. Why did you pick it? I said, because it is so relevant today. We are living in the midst of a culture that at the least don't like us. And in many cases will hate us. Now, it has not come to the point yet where where we've got to run for our lives, but it might. It might. But this is as relevant today as it was then. You see, as believers, our primary citizenship is in heaven, not in the United States. First and foremost, I am a citizen of the kingdom of God before I'm a citizen of the U.S. My primary constitution is this. This is what I live by. Now, I'm fine with the U.S. Constitution, but if those two have a problem with one another, I'm going to go by this, not the U.S. Constitution. Our first and primary king is Jesus Christ, not the the President of the United States. I obey Him first and foremost. And the dominant craving of our heart should be for the treasures in heaven, not for treasures here on on this earth. We are aliens. We are exiles. We are temporary residents on this earth. Earth. I, I saw an analogy the other day. A guy says, hey, when I go to a hotel, I don't redecorate it because I'm not going to be there very long, right? And I thought that was a pretty cool analogy. He said that this world should be like that. I'm not going to be here that long. My primary residence is somewhere else. The languages and values and customs of this world, they should be foreign to us. We do not belong here. And again, that's why these letters of of Peter today uh, that we're reading are as relevant today as they were back then. He is addressing Christians who struggle living as strangers in their uh, culture, which is exactly the type of circumstance that we face today. Now, next week, we're going to stay in verse 1. Actually, we'll be in verses 1 and 2. And you'll notice he says, not only are you exiles, you are what? Elect exiles. The word elect in the Greek means... anybody? Chosen. You are chosen exiles. Chosen exiles. It is amazing to me that he's writing to people who are running for their lives. He he is writing to people who literally could be caught and killed tomorrow, put up uh, covered in tar and set set uh, set, uh, on fire while you're alive. You could be tied into uh, wild animal skins and fed to the dogs. You could be boiled, burned. I mean, they come up with a myriad of ways to kill you. That could all happen tomorrow. And the very first thing out of his mouth is he wants you to know your identity. That's the first thing in this letter. You are elect. You are chosen. That is who you are. That is amazing for me that he will frame the beginning of the letter um, in this way. And so next week we'll come back and we'll talk about uh, chosen by uh, God. Let's pray.